Olivia Danucci is Direct Action and Community Resilience Coordinator for Code Pink, one of the most consistent voices against U.S. militarism of the past two decades, in which the U.S. has been in a state of continuous and seemingly endless war. Within this context, Code Pink challenges the military-industrial complex, or the network of individuals and institutions involved in the production of weapons and military technologies, funded by the Pentagon at an annual budget of several trillion dollars plus unknown sums of undisclosed top-secret financial investments. Olivia and I met while working on the 2020 election campaign to beat back fascism, which, needless to say, is an ongoing threat to our democracy and people's justice in the United States and around the world. Olivia shares her insights in this episode from her work as an organizer and educator, from the heart of U.S. policymaking in Washington, D.C., to the indigenous-led front lines of fossil fuel extraction projects like Line 3 Pipeline. So let's dive in. Hey, Olivia. Hey. Thank you so much for talking with me tonight. Of course. Can you start by telling us um, what is your role with Code Pink currently and how did you get here? Yes. Um, so... Officially, I started with Code Pink just a couple days ago, but I um, learned about them when I was abroad, knew that they were an anti-war, mostly women-led organization, and this is the longest I've been based in the U.S. since I was, like, 19, I think. Um, So I was really interested in how to intersect, like, foreign policy, social justice, um, while in the U.S., because with COVID, I didn't see um, my path being back abroad anytime soon. Um, and so I was out on the streets in D.C. for the Movement for Black Lives uprisings in 2020 and saw Medea Benjamin, who's a founder, and, you know, went up and just was interested in um, connecting with her while I was in D.C. and we um, didn't stay in touch, but then I found I, I met the other co-founder um, when I was up doing Line Three work in Minnesota, and the the stars aligned, and um, I kind of we sat down, and there was a position that was opening um, that combined their um, in-person DC action lead work with a local peace economy um, um, chapter that they were. Um, expanding and what really drew me to these roles were that they were a balance of like what we're standing for and what we're standing against Mm. um and so I'm really grateful to get started and the first campaign I'll be working on is cut the pentagon for people the planet peace and the future which comes as a response to um leaving Afghanistan after 20 years um so feeling really energized to to jump right in on that that is so amazing and I think I speak for all of us here when I say we're glad you're doing what you're doing. (laughs) So we met while we were working on an electoral campaign for the 2020 election Um, 
We were at the time doing virtual phone banking, organizing, trying to get out the vote for the resistance to fascism. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, how did your political action evolve into Frontline's action at Line 3 and in other spaces? Yeah. um, First of all, I'm so glad that we met how how we did. I I was nervous of meeting new people virtually because I'm such a hands-on people person that you know, it, it proved my assumptions wrong, which I think was a great learning out of COVID for me. Um, but I moved back to the U.S. Um, after being a social and climate justice facilitator for college students study abroad programs in eight different countries in the global south. The most fruitful work, I learned a ton. I underst- better understood the power of solidarity of um, international connections of struggle and um, what we're what we're up against but again what, what we're standing for um, but but came back to to work on the Bernie Sanders campaign because at the time he was someone that I aligned most my values aligned most closely with um, um, who was running against Trump and so I, I did feel kind of a, a a responsibility to, to, to be part of organizing um, electorally, considering we didn't have four more years, we didn't have four more years that could go by the climate, the people's lives, people's identities were being attacked left and right. Um, and, and then COVID had hit and he suspended from the campaign and, you know, a lot of things turned itself on their head um, for me and a lot of like this, this term mutual aid was, was brought into light. Um, a lot of activism that was happening online or a lot of unlearning that was happening, um, you know, just kind of going in deep inside of myself and being more introspective, um, reading a lot more, connecting with, with friends, um, behind screens and wanting to go through with the election, you know, you know, even though electoral politics for me, um, a lot of times can be very transactional and I don't believe in a two party system, but like, that's what we're working with. And that's what we were against in Mm. 2020. Um, but then from there, I, I really was adamant that like, yes, we're working towards this election, but the true work continues on January, um, or on, November 7th or whenever, whenever the dates were. Um, and when becoming more involved with the climate justice movement in the U S um, line three was one of the most pivotal and important in my mind. And I was living in Morocco during standing rock and had said, you know, when I'm in the U S if there's a call, I want to go if I can. Um, and I was able to, and, um, just learned an immense amount being up there at, at different camps and then really um, was able to channel how I could show up and participate. That was different than marching, you know, almost every day for six months on the streets for the Movement for Black Lives, but nonviolent direct action does mean putting your body on the line being arrested because of necessity and and that was um there's a been over 800 rest up on the front lines of line three and um i think that that's an element of the movement but i was just 
grateful to be able to go and still be part of that now. Yeah. And so how long did you spend participating in direct action at Line 3 and other elements of being involved at the camps? Yeah, so I, I was, I had been trained in direct action and participated in other direct actions that were outside of Line 3, um, like for the year prior when I was in the U.S., but what's, what was different there is the, it is a completely, for me, a completely embodied experience. Living and being able to spend time up there was really important. Um, not Again, not everyone can, not everyone can go there, not everyone is able to put their body on the line that way, but I um, really felt that I could and that there was a community around me. Um, I was in a really supportive affinity group, and for those who are not familiar, those are it's going into something um, with trusted friends or people who are connected to the movement that um, have either done it before or kind of are knowing what's going, you're getting yourself into, um, that take the load off of either indigenous leadership or people who've been up there before. Um, so I learned a lot more about community in this context. Um, you know, there were shared goals and a mission around specific days of action, but um, while living at the camps, you have to survive. So eating together, preparing meals together, um, living off of um, solar or pumping our own water, living out of a tent. And this isn't to romanticize, like this wasn't glamping by any means, but mm-hmm. I'd much rather prefer this type of living than, um, you know, being in an apartment complex with a door shut and you don't know your neighbors. Um, so yeah, those were a couple of things that made the destruction and the the severity of what was going on around us livable and sustainable and also knowing that I came in seven years after, you know, this is this fight has been going on for eight years and is an extension of Standing Rock, is an extension of the fight against colonialization for six hundred plus years. So mm-hmm. yeah. So you talked about how you came to into your role as a participant in nonviolent direct action in the Line 3 Indigenous-led resistance to the Tar Sands Pipeline. Um, I'm curious, how has your experience with direct action and mutual aid shaped how you understand collective transformation? Yeah. It's a great question. I think there's a lot in it. Um, I see collective transformation as being energetic intersectional, intergenerational, um, rooted in anti-oppression, anti-racism, um, and also global and local, um, simultaneously. And I think there are parallels between, for example, Palestinian liberation and indigenous sovereignty in this country. And if we're not able to make those, like, bridge, bridge that, then we're, we're losing something, like, bigger at large, like the the overall big picture. But at the same time, the local aspects of mutual aid are really beautiful and really powerful. Um, And this past year, I lived in Atlanta um, when, you know, Atlanta is historically has incredible black women leaders um, who have been on the front lines in their own ways of 
voter suppression, of segregation, of racism, of, of these things. And something really beautiful on a, on a micro level was that two sisters started these free 99 fridges after the, the Black Lives Matter um, protests in the summer. And there's eight or nine throughout the city. All of them are um, commemorative of people who lost their lives to police brutality murders. And the volunteers who stock those fridges make the meals from scratch. They are made truly with love. All of the ingredients are listed out there. There's a Slack channel with over 600 people that say, this fridge needs more of this, this needs this, this and that. And like, it's this beautiful collective community that during COVID was an, a way for people to um, give back tangi tangibly by way of dignity, solidarity, mm -hmm. not charity. That was one thing. Um, I did some work on organizing after the Texas storms and seeing how instantaneously people were checking on people they didn't know. And they were calling in from across the country, but the local people on the ground were getting food and water to the most um, neglected. And those were people with disabilities. Those were people in low-income housing. Those were black and brown communities. Um, so really seeing that that was the seventh natural disaster that they were dealing with, seeing how these are cycles of perpetual harm and like how generational trauma hits those communities and how mutual aid and community organizing was the way. It was mm. like moving from the big nonprofits to the small scale, then mowing people directly. And speaking of generational trauma, working um, or bearing witness to the what's going on in the camps that are right now, there's about six or seven, all the camps at line three, all um, run and cultivated by indigenous women, two-spirited people um, and femmes who not only are stewards of land and extended families, but of people who are just showing up and like, I'm here. And they are welcoming and also able to delegate and lead and share in cultural practices and then also um, be innovative. Winona LaDuke will say we're living the just transition. Um, mm. and, and, and she has, and so when we talk about collective transformation, it is building on the past indigenous knowledge to make a better future. And they'll, Tara Huska, the GNU Collective, um, we'll talk about the seven, the seven generations and how a decision people make for in the now, they make it so it affects seven generations from now. Mm -hmm. If we have seven generations from now, that will be miraculous for a lot of people. <laughs> so, so I think all of these elements of different communities who have been um, constantly been beaten down by systems, what uplifts them is community and not a romanticized community one of struggling together working together but the beauty of truly taking care of each other's survival needs to get through the day that gets through the next day that gets through the month that uplifts the movement is mm. extremely powerful so those were a couple of the examples i can name a lot more and there's so many more that i can't name because i'm not you know um living and breathing like how they are. So I encourage folks to read more about indigenous knowledge, to 
use social media and follow the people like the GNU Collective, Honor the Earth, Indigenous Rising. There's hopefully you can link to them later. For sure. Um, but that has helped for my own understanding of what collective transformation can be. Thank you so much for that. And that really that links back to something that we were talking about before we started recording, which was a concept handed down to us from Cornell West. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about something that I started this podcast um, framed around, which is the idea of hope as a practice and a discipline. And I'm wondering if you can read the quote that you pulled up from Cornell West. Optimism for me has never been an option because there's too much suffering in the world. But hope is something else, you see, because hope is not spectatorial. It's participatory. You're already in the mess. You're in the funk. What are you going to do? Hope is a verb as much as a virtue. Hope is as much a consequence of your action as it is the source of your action, as Roberto Uger once said. So that hope is something that you find in your immersion and you decide you're going to fight till the end, no matter what. And Mm. that really resonates with me and also I think of a lot of the, the people that you and I look up to and the ones who have come before us are here now and will come after us. And I think for us to think of a reimagined world, yes, we need to go back. Like there's this beautiful metaphor in uh, indigenous Ghanaian um, um, folklore of this goose reaching backwards to get the egg to go forward. And I, mm. I like to use that a lot with, with students um, because we want to instill hope in ourselves and, 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 and others. But I think under the capitalist model, it infringes upon our imagination. And so let's think outside the lines. Let's, let's, let's embrace when we think outside the lines um, or color outside the lines. Let's take risks. Let's be joyful and have fun while doing it because fun is a reactive resistance. Joy is a reactive resistance. And I saw that on line three. I see that in other spaces. And I think building a reimagined world that incorporates, sure, that incorporates solar panels and um, regenerative agriculture, all of those things, we have to look within that because I think even like green energy, you know, we don't want it to be the new green capitalism. But Mm. there are a lot of ways that we can move forward, that we can learn from our ancestors and that we can channel the energy of young people. And I think that that's what gives me momentum. Um, it's easier to be in movement. Like, again, Cornell West will say, and Marian Kaba and AOC, I think, just tweeted that too a couple of days ago, that we want to be in movement, but know that we don't need to always recreate the wheel either. Um, yeah. Too. Mm. <laughs> you know, I was not raised religious, but this is the gospel that you are speaking to my soul. <laughs> yeah, I think that you've spoken to so many powerful examples of that creativity in action, that imagining worlds as we are 
actively living them moment to moment. And those creative relationships that are in themselves generative and like that are in themselves showing us what's possible for a different world that we can say yes to, um, they are emergent in the convergences of these frontlines actions where so much is at stake for us to lose and also where the voices that are at risk of being lost because they are continually being suppressed by different forces of oppression and capitalism are being elevated so that we can hear what we have been that what has been silenced and who has been silenced so I'm curious about some of the ways that you have seen creative innovation taking place in spaces of movement building, whether that be at Line 3 or in like the Bernie Sanders campaign, in the November runoff election in Atlanta that you were talking about earlier. You know, people are coming into these spaces with a lot of different skill sets, experiences, and identities, and orientations to the world. Mm -hmm. And what we are seeing is leadership, especially indigenous leadership, black and black women leadership, and non-binary leadership, and youth. <laughs> mm -hmm. That, um, yeah, we're seeing them creating a container for all of these people to come together and harmonize. And I'm curious about your experiences of those harmonies and what impact it has on the collective. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of the things you've touched on are, are based on my experiences between, like, uh, within the past year. But I want to go back to all of the times I was welcomed into communities across the world, particularly in the global, global South, which is disproportionately hit with the climate crisis, with the economic crisis, with the public health crisis, with all of these things over and over and over again. And I, and I think we use the term resiliency as something like, like, oh yeah, someone's resilient, so they're strong. But then we, we, we don't, associate that with vulnerability or with, again, the trauma that that takes. So mm. I see, I've learned so much from the relationships that I built with people like that, that were on the ground when, for example, in Morocco, the largest um, solar power plant in the world exists there. But it was at the cost of pushing people off their land, the indigenous people there. And it was with the manipulation that those jobs would go to those people. And the relationships that, that were built with the people in the community that would just talk to us about that experience was so important. You know, it's easy to see like pathways to the future, but it's so easy to erase certain people. So you were saying earlier how some people are silenced, but I think we also need to really bang positive hands that people have been erased and genocide mm -hmm. and colonialism and imperialism historically and currently. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and bringing that into harmony 
and bringing the, again, the nuances and the streamlines between movements together and to not compartmentalize all the time um, is important. And like everyone has a place in the movement. So you're talking about creativity, like artists are the first to go in, you know, when fascism strikes down because creativity Mm -hmm. is threatening, threatening. Yeah. It's, it's threatening. So using art to convey messages, um, to the masses, uh, using music, rap and hip hop and, um, things that be, that can be communicated using ceremony. I mean, like healing is something that we aren't talking about as much, but is so needed in this. Um, so all of those things I think are important and are able to bring in folks like, um, seeing how intergenerational this was, um, up in, at camps when people not only respect elders way of thinking and, and children, but seeing a lot of anti-Vietnam war folks being up there on the ground, being like the climate, you know, I'm, I'm doing this for my grandchildren, but I also have nothing to lose. Like I'm 80 and then 20 year olds being like, I don't have another decade in front of me. So I don't, I don't have anything to lose. And a lot of them being, um, feeling included in the movement who were non-binary, who were, um, LGBTQ plus, who were, um, a lot of the organizers from the, um, George Floyd in Minneapolis who were black and who were young, who were on the front lines training other people to, to, to be it and seeing those parallels were really strong. Um, but we see this across the the world, you know, for anti LGBTQ plus actions, having like mass kissings at, 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 in, <laughs> in places outside the Supreme courts. Um, I think elements right now are seeing what just happened in Texas, the, the anti-abortion and anti anyone uh, reproductive justice. I looked at Argentina when I spent time there and like 10,000 people plus being out on the streets for, um, going against femicides um, and, and other things. And, and I looked at a person next to me and being like, do you all do this every day? They're like, yeah, this is in our blood. Like protesting is in our blood. When Chile, um, the, the transit price went up like a couple of cents, the cop was completely canceled for the whole world was coming there a couple of years ago. So like the power of people is not just a bumper sticker. It really can create change um but it takes the masses it i hope will mean it takes a general strike for us to wake up to some of these things you just said it yeah and so i i do think that there are certain things that are not always accessible to everyone um and that we do need to make movements more accessible um especially for our friends who are um have different who are disabilities whether that's mental emotional or physical mm-hmm. but mass action needs to be needs to happen on so many fronts and for one that they're not affecting us for people we don't know and i think that was a big takeaway from something like the bernie sanders you know talking about the campaign of fighting for people we don't know wearing a mask for someone we don't know bringing food and dropping it off for someone we don't know and putting our bodies on the line for someone we don't know or creating art for someone we don't know, just like kind of 
perpetuating that over and over again. Yeah. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> the experience of personal liberation that comes from being alongside a swell of people who are in their power. You talked about embodiment as part of your experience participating in Frontline's direct action, where you are at the source of the extraction or of violence, and you are directly confronting the target who is the source, who is the the perpetrator of that violence and extraction. And when, when a group, a mass of people are able to swell up, rise up, and experience the embodied sensation of their empowerment together, that not only is personally transformative, but it is a form, perhaps, of world-making. And we see it in ripples all over the world throughout time. I think I tend to think about this experience of movement building in a US-centric context, but that is incredibly limiting because in my lifetime, the international um, terrain of different mass movements of people's liberation has happened outside of the US. even though it's all tied together because the U.S. is responsible for so much imperial and neocolonial extraction and puppeteering of other nations' sovereignty. And so this brings us back to your work with Code Pink, trying to, you know, confront the Pentagon and the U.S. context of militarism. So... In your role, which you are granted like just at the beginning of, but you've been thinking about for a long time, I think, um, you are holding two pieces that seem somewhat um, opposite each other, or at least not apparently connected. Um, the connection might not be obvious. And those two things are Frontline's direct action, where you are confronting a target by putting your body in the way of that, like, process Mm -hmm. that you're targeting. Um, And you are also trying to locate and connect with community-based resiliency projects and, and just systems. And so this, this sort of makes me think of a sacred geometry of three things that you are trying to achieve in both cases. And in order to consider your work successful or impactful, is a better word, you have to sort of hit all three. So there's your target, who is the source of the violence or of the wrongdoing that is occurring. That there is also the witness, which is the people around you who are watching what you are doing and either actively or passively taking a side. And then there is the personal experience of what happens to you and the people that you are in relationship with in your organization when you 
engage yourself directly with action to confront systems of oppression. Mm-hmm. And so in your role of trying to strike this geometry, how do you think about organizing people and creating artful demonstrations to achieve that impact? Mm. I like the sacred geometry as a non-math person. I'm like, put the word sacred in front of it. It makes it a lot more appealing. <laughs> you know, as you were talking, my, I just, so many bubbles came into my mind of like, oh, this, this, and this, and this. And like, I think that's part of my role, but a lot of people's role who see themselves as a connector and, or as someone who's just curious or like, sometimes I'm like, I think I'm perpetually like 18 where every time I meet someone, I'm just like, I want to be a sponge to like <laughs> be, so I can like learn from them and then like keep building. Um, and I think part of it is that is like, how do we build our coalitions to make them broader? And in this specific campaign, cut the Pentagon for people, for a planet, um, peace and a future is truly that like our Pentagon budget is so exploded. We don't know how much money it is, is in it because a trillion dollars, no one can like envision what that is. But if we break it down to being like, that could feed this many people that could give this many people healthcare that could give this many people access to better education that could give. And that's just like with 1% of our budget, <laughs> like it's not even like the whole thing. So I think this part of that is like communicating the message to everyday people because everyday people, whether you're in this country or other country, are affected by our Pentagon budget. The military and industrial complex is so all-encompassing and there's a reason why we don't know it. There's a reason why people say, well, how do we pay for it or when it comes to healthcare, but not when we can go to war with like that. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why um, certain things are taboos and certain things aren't. And how do we build a coalition that brings in everyone all together? And that is making it fun, right? That is being, um, loud and bold in ways that are, um, excessive or I'm sorry, (laughs) well, yeah, maybe excessive, but, um, accessible, and, 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 and communicating that message is part of relationship building, right? And I am so grateful for my experience at working um, in education and experiential learning. And I want to bring this example in, as you were saying, that it happens in other parts of the world and is also, you know, on our legacy of being imperialist and our legacy of warmongering. So when I was in Vietnam with a group of students and within a couple of days, I had students in tears being like, or on the verge of tears or in tears. And like, why are we even allowed here as Americans? Like, this is so viscerally uncomfortable to be welcomed, quote unquote, welcomed into a country when like agent, we just had a a presentation on Agent Orange, which was, you know, the, for those who don't know, which I also didn't know until just a couple of years ago, because I did not learn about it in school. Mm-hmm. was the chemicals um, sprayed by our warfare dr- um, airplanes to completely wipe out farms that would then starve people that would then make the, the communities weaker to be able to fight that. 
and that we learned how that's still so prevalent today. And I didn't have the answer and no one does. And I think too, when we look at these things, it's like we should really be focusing on the process instead of the product. And like the process of discomfort of being in Vietnam and as much as we say we want to decolonize certain aspects, some things are inherently not able to happen. And so we were in a place that we could be leaving, that we went into and that we were leaving. But what we do with that knowledge, how we bear witness, how we take things in and change our mindsets or think of things differently and ask better questions or ask more questions and learn and unlearn will inevitably help our little community and then in whatever place of power and privilege that we all have because you and I just talking to each other about this is a privilege being able to reflect (laughs) on these things is and how that plays into things and that we will make mistakes we will cause harm but how do we reduce that in ways that are intentional but then it does feel really good again to be in movement and to be within a movement and to co-create those spaces and to be in a process with other people so not being afraid to like feel like the discomfort like have mentors that we can go to or have collectives or affinity groups or teachers and whatever form of that is and that going to that sacred triangle we are together we'll go after our target together we'll bear witness and then individually we are um, transforming ourselves and then the collective um so yeah, not losing sight of that. And I'm saying this all out loud as like my own personal process because a lot of this stuff is in motion. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, that's also what the movement is referring to yeah. is that internal motion that is not just contained in that one experience yeah. where you became aware, but that continues on yeah. through your life in its different seasons. Yeah, and I think that a lot of people talk about, like, guilt and acting out of feeling bad or feeling sorry or, like, we should do something. But I really encourage us all to kind of, like, turn that on its head of, like, if we have knowledge or we have um, certain things we can give, to give them out of solidarity and as as our commitment to... Instead of this, I want to make myself feel better about or feel bad or, you know, because I think then it, then we're not addressing the power dynamics at play there. Right. Um, and to always check ourselves and check each other. That accountability, um, Alex Goldenwolf, who, who's um, an incredible young person up on the, the front lines of uh, in line three, will say that, like, being in community with each other is holding yourselves and each other accountable. And that that's, those, there's going to be rough patches, but that's, we learn almost the most out of conflict and out of those rough patches and mm-hmm. that we should always credit who we're learning from and about and all of that. And, you know, recognizing that we're welcomed into spaces and to like not take that lightly and that we're always learning, but yeah. And co-learning. And I'm learning together. So at least I, that's where like, I'm coming from. I'll speak in I statements, but yeah. <laughs> that is 
That is such a beautiful way to wrap up everything that we've <laughs> talked about today. So thank you so much for speaking so robustly about your personal experience and linking so many different movements from Palestine to Argentina to Chile to the indigenous um, water protectors up in Anishinaabe territory mm-hmm. and the black female leadership in Atlanta mm-hmm. and everything else that we've explored through this conversation. And I think you, and you're always such a light. I'm, we're in your beautiful farm here in the Shenandoah Valley. This is another a regenerative space and building community that you're doing. This is great. And I'm honored to be on here and looking forward to listening to your other episodes. So thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening. If you appreciate this work, the simplest and easiest way to support it is by hitting that subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening, sharing it with your friends, and following us on Instagram at wildhoney.collective. This episode released the day following another problematic American holiday, Thanksgiving. Some people call it thanks-taking, Some call it a day of mourning for the violence of colonization against indigenous peoples of Turtle Island. How we mark, name, and commemorate history matters, especially during a time when indigenous lands are still under attack, as they have been for 400 years, and too many of us perpetuate unexamined consumption of industrially farmed foods in order to celebrate our gratitude. Want to learn how to reinvest in your local soil microbiome and prepare nourishing community meals with whatever is on hand and in the ground? We are starting Cooking Collective in December. Every Friday night, we'll be hosting pop-up dinners with foraged and locally farmed foods, bringing us together over an intentional space to reflect on our individual relationships to food and hold each other accountable to our intentions. We'll also be starting a book club, Shelf Discovery Book and Breakfast Club. You can check into either of these offerings by signing up through the link in all of the bios on all of the platforms. New episodes will come out every Friday for all of season one, but if you want to hear more, you can get your friends to follow on wildhoney.collective on Instagram. Last but not least, You can support the podcast on Patreon by becoming a monthly subscriber, which comes with added benefits, including merch. Rock the culture out in the world. Help us pollinate ideas for greater collective health. And for all you wild honeys out there, keep creating.